This is Mission.org. Welcome to Marketing Trends. This is Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at The Mission. In today's episode, we are doing part two of the interview with Jale Bicharet. Jale is the co-founder and CEO of Naked Poppy, and she has served as the CMO or VP of Marketing at companies like Amazon, OpenTable, Upwork, and Eventbrite. This is the second part of our two-part episode. So if you haven't listened to part one, you can go back and listen to that first. In this episode, we're talking to her about what it's like to make the jump from CMO to a startup founder and how to create a great culture for your marketing team. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. This is part two of our amazing interview with Jale. What is going on? <laughs> Quite a bit, apparently. <laughs> it seems like so long ago that we finished part one, but uh, in reality, it was just minutes ago in the studio. So today on this episode, we're going to go into a little bit more of the CEO side of your career, you know, from a marketer turned CEO of Naked Poppy, what it is that you're doing, why you created this company, how to create a culture. And we're going to go into some marketing of the future thoughts and the role of the CMO in 2019 and beyond how marketing is changing. And then a little bit of lightning rounds as we always do. Are you ready? Sure. <laughs> So you're a founder now, and you have a long career in marketing. Why did you decide to take the plunge, and what is your company? So company is called Naked Poppy. We are actually not officially launched. We're live to friends and family, quietly live, we call it. Which I didn't means know that. People can, yeah, people can, our friends and family can go on and transact, but we're still deep in the customer obsession. We'll always be customer obsessed, but deep in the learning from our customer stage still. So why did I decide to take the plunge? You know, it was not an intentional taking the plunge. It's actually interesting. For many years, recruiters would call and say, you've been doing marketing a long time. Don't you want to be a COO, CEO? And the answer was never yes. I was not thinking about it in terms of role or title. Didn't have a need to do to be a CEO or a COO, but I was just so seized with this particular idea. Um, Naked Poppy offers clean beauty, that is makeup that is toxin-free, and it's so important for women's health that what they put on their faces be free of toxins. Yeah. <laughs> so I- And men's health, let's be and real. And men's health, yeah, <laughs> and their children's health, actually, because sometimes kids lick your faces. So yeah. it was the idea that gripped me and wouldn't let go that caused me to become the co-founder of this company. It had nothing to do with wanting to be a CEO, actually. So you pitched your startup a little bit different. And you know, every every startup, obviously, every company, I shouldn't even say startup, is unique. It's its own unique flower, pardon the pun. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's its own unique little poppy in the world. But you pitched this completely different to investors. Why'd you do that? I don't know if we pitched it differently, but we took a different approach. We 
did not have a deck. It's pretty traditional to show up with your PowerPoint deck or your Google Slides deck. We actually sat down and we did this mostly, well, we began with doing it for ourselves. So I remember the very day I said, you know, let me just start really researching this thing. I'm going to write a day one business plan. Well, I'm sure I'll look back and laugh, but I like putting things on paper in the written word in full sentences for the following reason. You cannot be fuzzy in your thinking when you write it down. So ended up writing a six-page Amazon-style memo. We talked about Amazon in the previous session, but yep. we did not do six-page memos when I was there. That came later. No kidding. I didn't um, know that. I was going to ask you that, and I forgot. So this is great. Yeah. No, that came later. We heard about it. I, I, I heard about it somewhere and really loved all the reasoning behind it. It's great. Right? It's one of the most well-thought-out ideas. And if you've ever worked with Amazon, I've worked with Amazon, that... It's just, it backwards plans your entire approach in a way that's so customer focused from the very beginning and it's just great. Well, and the thing that I have seen is that when you create a deck, it is by definition light on content. Really good decks are very visual. And so you can sort of defer fuzzy thinking. (laughs) You can just say, well, that's a nice slide and I'll kind of talk my way through it. But when you are forced to write it down section by section, what's the vision? (laughs) You know, why are we the very best people to execute this vision? Who exactly is the customer? You know, what is her DNA like? How is this going to differentiate itself from other products or services that are out there? So on and so forth. It forces you to be crisp. That's number one. Number two, you know, when you take it out to investors, instead of like getting to slide three and getting bogged down into a rat hole, it actually structures a very, a a much more disciplined conversation because they take 15 or 20 minutes to digest from beginning to end. They take notes in the margin. Then you can have a conversation. So it's less about the showmanship of whether or not you can present and more about the substance of what you're trying to build. I mean, the main reason that VCs use decks, in my, in my opinion, from what I know, which our listeners can take mm-hmm. or leave, is just so that they compare apples to apples. They just want all, they want the 15 slide deck or whatever, it, the 10 slide deck, however it is, so that they compare all of their portfolio companies and all of their investments in a way to each other that they can easily, it's like a mental model. It's all it is. It's just so that they can view these things. And again, that totally makes sense. But for, it doesn't mean it's the way. And the biggest thing that you know we've learned being here in, in the Valley is that a lot of companies were made by coloring outside the lines. So, you know, don't just take it at face value. Well, actually, and that, that that's another interesting point too, which is that we did bring a new approach. <laughs> and it was interesting to watch different investors' reactions. The ones who sort of said, this is not how we do things. We thought to ourselves, well, we're trying to disrupt, to offer disruptive offerings. So we actually want the investors who enjoyed the fact that we took a disruptive approach. And to be clear, it's not just, it's literally a business plan. <laughs> like right. it's, it's exactly it's common sense. Yeah. That's true too. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it should be, if you can't take, you know, 15 minutes to read through a document, then probably not, not the right person to, to invest in, in naked poppy mm-hmm. at a minimum. So how did you mentally prepare for 
this company going from marketing to CEO? Because like from what I said, I guess it seems like marketing is the most important thing after you do all of your customer development discovery, you know, creating the product and around that. But it's going to be, it seems like it's such a marketing intensive organization going forward. So it kind of seems like you had to be kind of excited about the fact of like, I know what I'm doing and the vision is clear of where we want to go, like as a product to serve our customers and all that. But once you're armed with that data, it's like, I have all the tools at my disposal, right? Well, yes and no. So if you go on to the Quietly Life site, you will see that there's actually a lot of data science involved in what we do because it's not only that we offer clean makeup, but that we help women find what's going to look best on her based on information we ingest about her. So the key was to do what any, in my opinion, any good executive does, which is to make sure to compliment yourself with people who are very different from you. I thought you meant compliment yourself like, <laughs> great job, Ian. <laughs> with an E, not an I. Yeah. Compliment. Yeah. <laughs> to, so I am not uh, by any means a data scientist. And so my co-founder is, she's a brilliant, her name's Kimberly Shank. She's a brilliant data science leader, product person. I know, very I know, technical. I know you know Kimberly. Kimberly. Oh my yeah, goodness. I know her. Yeah, exactly. That's so funny. So like with anyone, and if you're a super technical CEO, of course, you're going to want to go find a sales and marketing oriented person, I would think, <laughs> especially in the consumer space. But I think that that's a big problem for a lot of folks is they don't have the marketing chops. I mean, I would say the vast majority, in my opinion, again, I have no data on this, so maybe we'll look it up. Producer Ben, love to get some data on this. How few startups, I, I wonder if we could pull something in Crunchbase on this, but how many startups don't have a marketing person on their teams? Got You know what? Very I, high. This is anecdotal, so you can have Producer Ben look it up too, but... For some reason, recruiters and venture capitalists over the years have said to me that the toughest position they always fill is head of marketing. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's why. So that that thing that came out in Corn Ferry, we've talked about, uh, I think, a couple episodes ago in 2012, that was 80% of CEOs don't trust their CMOs. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, and yeah, the, all, the, all the data shows that it's the position in the C-suite that's the most you know, overlooked and overthought. And yeah, I mean, and the reason why is like, Marketing changed in the past 10 years, past 20 years, more than any other C-level. I mean, maybe you could argue maybe CIOs or something, but by far the most changed. Like Facebook didn't exist, you know, whatever, you mm -hmm. know, in the same way it did 10 years ago. Like 20 years ago, you know, Google, of course it's going to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've, you even look at what Amazon is doing right now with their advertising. This stuff is changing so fast that everybody has to keep up. It's part of the reason why we created the podcast. But, you know, I think that, Founders, it is really, really hard, really hard. All of my peers that are founders struggle to find CMOs. Mm -hmm. How do you create a culture, whether it's at a startup or from your marketing teams, that worked well? You know, you worked at obviously Amazon, but OpenTable, Upwork, Eventbrite, some of the really kind of the true unicorns that have come out of the valley and, and been involved in marketing teams and being a CMO of teams that were just extremely high performing. How did you look at that from the very beginning? Yeah. Well, so you have to be extremely intentional to create a good culture, in my opinion. You know, sometimes I joke that when by the time you're a CMO, you're not only running marketing, but you have to be very good at HR. <laughs> and so 
You know, when I think about creating a culture, some of the brands you described, by the way, I got there very early. Not all of them, but like Upwork, I got there when it was Odesk. It was a much smaller company. There were It was a small team. So let me tell you sort of the three questions I ask myself as I think about building a culture. And even at Make It Poppy now, there's just three full-time people. We're extremely intentional about the culture because it's really everything. It's what you've got. Every business has its hiccups. Every business has its challenges. Every business has its dark days. And to me, the great, great cultures are the ones that really emerge from those times, not when things are going well. And so I would break it down into three questions that I would ask myself about, you know, in setting up or articulating any kind of culture, creating any kind of culture. The first is, how can I make their work matter? The people on the team and the people more broadly. And, and you know, I'll go through the three actually, and then I'll tell you, tell you how it happens. Yep. So one is, how can I make their work matter? Number two is, how can I free their minds and provide focus? Interesting. There's so much that goes on in people's heads that distracts them. It's just mental overhead in any job, the bigger your company gets. So how do I free their minds? And then the third is how do I set the right culture from the very top? Meaning people say stuff all the time and the team rolls their eyes because they're not walking the walk. So I can go into each of those three. If yeah, I mean, you know, it just makes me think of it. in the military, we used to use, you have to give a task and purpose, mm-hmm. right? But a lot of the times we give the task and you don't give the purpose, like the why we need to do this stuff. And it's something at the mission we try to be extremely intentional about. Like you, you have to give a purpose, the why of, you know, the things that you're doing. Otherwise, it's not going to resonate with the employee in a way that makes them feel empowered. Well, exactly. And so like in terms of them making their work matter, I mean, human beings are wired to want to feel like they matter. So it's what, why does the work matter? And then why do they individually matter? Yeah. And those are two very different things. Yes. You know, one thing I've learned too is that the larger an organization gets, the more you say over the same thing over and over again, what to you feels like over communication is not enough for them. So you should be feeling like you've over-rotated on picking your North Star and saying it way too many times. That is great. That is great, great insight because it is something that I've seen countless times where, didn't we already say this? Haven't we said this? Didn't we already say this? And they're like, like, I don't remember. No, (laughs) but but then if you were to pull, if you were to do a survey monkey and you asked everyone internally and you said, you know, write the mission of the company or, you know, whatever it is. Right. That's a great experiment to run. What's our what's our six month focus? Yeah. yeah. The other is of course making sure they each know how they tie to it. And here's a really important piece of the how they tie to it, which is people, especially in other departments, will always gravitate towards the highest title that will pay attention. You know, your peer will say to you, so and so CMO, what do you think of thus and such? It is your job to say, actually Nancy's in charge of this. <laughs> You know, let's bring her into the conversation. Or when Nancy comes to you, nine times out of 10 to say, okay, we talked about it, you decide. You decide are the two most empowering words in the English language. You know, it's extremely rare that it really, really is important that you, the CMO, decide. Like there will be those occasions where you just have to pull rank. But if the more you're able to say you decide, the more they will get better and better and better at their jobs. Because if you've hired well, you've hired people who are better than you do in that area to begin with anyway. They should be making better decisions than you or you don't have the right hire. 
So how do you find these people? I know, you know, you worked at Upwork for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, are were you, were you looking at contractors? Do you like, how do you, how do you kind of build your team? How, and if you were, you know, a CMO tomorrow, I mean, obviously you're hiring, hiring a team as a CEO, but if you were hiring a team tomorrow from scratch or just new employees, like, how do you do this? Well, the best way to hire people is to have a reputation as a manager people want to work for. Yeah. <laughs> so you need to start, you know, implementing the kinds of things that make people the same people want to work for you again and for them to tell their friends that you ought to go work for her because she's a really good boss or he's a really good boss or manager. I should say coach, manager, not boss. So, and to me, like it's rare that I hire on inbound my best hires are no kidding always always people that i know or friends of friends or you know through the network because good people travel in packs they know each other they recommend each other and they tell each other you know the other thing i wanted to actually mention was the the bit about like freeing up their minds because this is a, actually a really big deal i think in lots and lots of companies Tons of time is wasted on non-customer focused things. So there's, and you're going to relate to this. So I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know where to begin. Or I know this is a better idea, but if I do it this way, so-and-so will be impressed. So I guess the CEO wants it that way. So I'll just do it that way, even though it doesn't make sense to me. Or I'm afraid to speak up because I know exactly who's going to think I'm stupid. All of this self-talk that goes on. Should I ask for a raise? Shouldn't I ask for a raise? If I ask for a raise, am I going to get the, like, how do I, you know, every second of that is a second taken away from thinking about your customer and what's going to make them happy. And there are some organizations where that's 30, 40, 50% of what's going through people's heads or they're just doing stuff that doesn't really benefit the customer. So you're, you know, if as CMO, you can remove all that internally focused brain power angst. and f- angst <laughs> and self-talk and focus it externally because you've got a really clear vision because you figured out the 20% that matters because you don't change your mind about the 20% that matters unless there's significant new information next day or next week because you give people permission to focus on what matters. They come in so much calmer, so much more focused and then get so much more work done in less time you've got a high performance team. You know, one of the things that we do for that is don't create duplicate reports. Like if you're going to create a report, it should go to the customer. Like I don't ever need to see as a leader a report. It's the same thing like that we used to do when I was in the military, but it's, you know, I don't need to see a report for for me just to feel good about myself so that you're running around doing Mm -hmm. PowerPoint presentations. Like, you know, for us, it was different because it's the commander, but don't, don't, duplicate work like your employees know that you're wasting their time and with marketing there is so much tracking and analytics that needs to happen that needs to roll up to the cmo and ultimately needs to roll up to the leadership team or the board or any of that that goes into revenue projections that goes into all of that how do you kind of position that how do you kind of like not waste their time and make sure that they're i know they're they're feeling empowered but not just spinning their wheels so it's a constant constant conversation actually (laughs) about I want you to raise your hand if you think what you're doing is busy work so there's several pieces of it one there's busy work and then there's truly getting insight and there's everything in between and we're in a constant state of calibrating is this busy work or is this truly reaching insights that drives 
customer satisfaction and that drives success. I can give you an example actually, which is, <laughs> this is my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Not everyone will agree, but you know, I was at a company and the PR team was spending 20 hours a quarter trying to show metrics for impressions and hits and quality of hits. And, you know, it was kind of like these people are media people. They're really good at getting media hits. They're ex First of all, they were terrible at it. And secondly, at some point, you just have to say, you know, measuring the value down to the decipenny of a PR hit, which you can't really truly ever nail down, is not the same as understanding the impact of my pricing model and, you know, how many people choose this product at this level. So sometimes you actually have to back off and say that you're spending more time analyzing than you are serving. <laughs> no, totally. I, the PR marketing, I mean, we should do a whole episode just on that, but it's not just PR, it's branding, it's brand plays, it's brand awareness, it's all of this. I mean, like the time that we spend trying to quantify, I mean, like an old pal used to sell yellow pages ads. Like how do you quantify the difference between a fourth of a page and an eighth of a page yellow page ad, right? Like how do you quantify which billboard on 101. Well, that's the one that's kind of like slightly lower. It's only like a 30 foot one. So you don't see it quite as well. I mean, that sort of stuff is like marketers burn years of their lives on right. this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And actually, you know, there is a shortcut to it too, which is I have noticed that the people for whom the analytics matter, they enjoy doing it. Like, because they know that what they're getting at is, is part of the 20%. Yeah. This insight, like the 2.7 reservations or the yep. 10 minutes a week, this is fundamentally changes the way we look at things and fundamentally changes our actions. So those people are happy doing the, the work to get to the insight because it affects their jobs in a good way. It's the ones who are just bored and miserable because they can sense that it doesn't change their actions anyway. It's just kind of justifying that they're measuring their stuff. Absolutely. Switching kind of gears towards that CMO and marketing of the future, what are some things like some common mistakes, some other mistakes that you've seen experienced marketers make? I'll tell you a mistake that I've made. Yeah. <laughs> and that I learned from. You're an experienced marketer. That's perfect. <laughs> I think it is very easy to forget that marketing is part of a much, much larger picture, especially in this day and age where, you know, teams assemble and reassemble and there are growth teams that need to span marketing and engineering and product and so on. So if anything, I would say the mistake that I've made in the past is to think a little bit too narrowly about marketing and not broadly enough about how we fit into the larger organization and the larger effort to really, really blow away customers. It's a big job, right? When you, especially if you've got a large team. And so it's very easy to take that stance. But actually, if you're really thinking from day, just about customers, you got to start with what matters to them and work back from there. With looking at emerging technologies, like how do you think that the CMO's job is going to change over the next you know, five or 10 years? So five years... I think of our in technology as living in dog years. <laughs> yeah. So that's more like 35 to 70 years is what you're asking. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, which is really far into the future. I think, uh, let me just look a couple years out. The, here's the trend I'm seeing right now or the, uh, the concern I'm seeing right now, which is that a lot of times people are 
splitting marketing in their heads. You know, this person is either really good at communications and brand and storytelling, or this person over here is really good at growth. And it's almost like we need two heads of marketing, one to do the words and one to do the numbers. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think, you know, men and women who aspire to be great CMOs need to learn how to knit it all together. When you're young in your career, the best thing you can do is to go across as many different functions as you possibly can and do as many different things laterally. So I would tell a younger marketing person to do the growth work, to try doing PR, you know, try doing storytelling, try it all so that when someday you're a CMO, you can manage it all and they can hire just you and not think that you have you can't have both under one umbrella. I was going to say, what what piece of advice would you give to an up and coming marketing executive? But I feel like you just kind of said it. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's really salient because if you have not spent, like, let's say you were at a company that didn't do a lot of SEO, for example, I guarantee you in the future, you're going to be doing a lot of SEO, you know, or whatever it is. Or if you're at, you know, a B2B company that wasn't buying a bunch of Facebook ads or, or whatever. I mean, just, you know, not to go into the duopoly too much. But but I, I think that it's really important to sit down with experts in those different roles because you might not get the job doing that thing, but you do need to have a holistic approach to be able to manage you know, those people. And actually, you know, one thing I love is doing a job before you hire for it. So let's say that you don't have a person to do your email marketing yet. Nothing wrong with being a permanent student, no matter how old or experienced you are, learning how to do it, doing it yourself. Because when you hire that person, you'll set their goals better. You'll understand the job better. And the world is changing so quickly that it's really easy to get out of touch. These are actually excuses to immerse in the details again and learn and get good at something new. You know, one other mistake, I, I just, my mind went back to this. You said, what other what yeah. mistakes do marketing people make? I do think that it is very easy with all the analytics tools out there now to forget to talk to customers one at a time. I know we talked about this earlier, but it just feels inefficient, but you cannot get in someone's DNA without it. So it's like the over-communicating on the, you know, what's our North Star internally. You want to over rotate on talking to customers outside your company. Yeah, I mean, step outside the office <laughs> and, and go meet them in their environments. I think that's one of the things that's the most exciting about marketing automation and tools like Pardot, shout out to our mm-hmm. sponsor. But it's so exciting that you can have hundreds of conversations with people in a different way. Like that is so exciting to me because you do, it's not a you know, like, like the Netflix, I, 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 have you ever seen their taste clusters? Have you seen mm-hmm. this? Oh, this is great. So mm-hmm. basically what <clears throat> Netflix does, they mix their algorithm with mm-hmm. human, basically like human curation and they mm-hmm. create a taste cluster mm-hmm. and then you end up being like, you know, BR234 or whatever is, is the one that like Ian somewhere in the in in the thing is a taste cluster. But it's kind of a mix of both, right? It's like, we're going to see what the numbers say. And then also like, what is a human being think about all of this. But I think that the way ultimately you have to be, you know, obsessed about the customer, you have to talk to them in real life. And then you can build those into those, you know, personas or clusters or however you want to call it. And then you can actually speak to them that way via email or or text or however however they're doing those things. I think that's really empowering. Like how cool is that? Mm -hmm. You couldn't have had a thousand conversations with a thousand different people. And I bet you that 
the companies that do focus on that about I'm going to have a thousand different customer personas. Maybe that's overkill, but maybe not. Maybe that's what it's going to be like in five years or, or 10 years. Or maybe there's some folks out there that are doing that now that want to shoot us an email at team at marketingtrends.com to let us know if there's any any fun stuff that you're working on. But yeah, I, I just think that's super empowering. Final thing. Let's get into the lightning round. I know you, you got to get out of here. I know we appreciate your time. <laughs> Fast and easy questions. What app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Park mobile till I got a parking ticket. Oh, <laughs> that's a, man, that's a red flag if there ever was one. Favorite time-saving tool? Evernote. I just, anytime anything comes into my head, I put an Evernote and then I can forget about it until I'm ready to do it. That's how it saves me time. Favorite team? Could Make be it. sports or otherwise. The Warriors. Good ups. Favorite podcast or book that you've read recently? Oh my gosh. So many books I love I can't even begin, but I just finished Small Fry by Lisa Brennan Jobs and it was fantastic. I have not The I Daughter not of Steve it. Jobs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We just did forty year or forty lessons from forty years of Apple ads on the podcast, which should be out today. So shout out to Steve Jobs and Apple. I cannot wait to see that. It's Great, yeah, it's it's done really well. We launched it on uh, on Product Hunt as a uh, as a download, and it did really well. So, thanks to all of our listeners who are checking out the Forty Lessons of Forty Years of Apple Ads. Favorite show that you're watching? I don't watch TV. I read. Favorite ad that you've seen recently? Ooh, that's a good one. I mean, honestly, the Think Different ads just stick out of my head. We yeah. did we did a lot of time on the Think Different ads. Definitely, yeah. it's. It's one of the best ever. Yeah. Think different is a different kind of ad. So funny that they, I mean, well, we just talked about mm -hmm. this. So it's in that it was just like IBM would think and then they were just like, well, think different. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just so great. Just Well, you know why? Because great brands, what they do so well is they make you, the customer, the person feel differently in the presence of that brand. They bring out, a, they make you feel differently. about. So think different was the ultimate genius in doing that they, who doesn't want to think they think different all of the apple ads it was really interesting with, with some of the themes that we saw but all of them speak to the customer in a new way it's mm -hmm. like they are projecting who like they think you are and you want to be right. in a way that is so forward thinking yeah. it's it's just yeah, really it's good. not about the product it's about yourself in the presence of that product yeah and that's what they do so beautifully well that's um, what Nike does too, obviously. Just do it. It's not about what you're wearing. It's how you feel about the motivation you get when you hear that line. Favorite campaign of all time? Quick story of one that you've run? Favorite, you mean ad campaign? Yeah, or just like marketing campaign that you've run that you've on one that you've worked on? Um, <laughs> the Amazon Sweaterman ad campaign of 1999, the Christmas campaign. <laughs> we did some TV ads with Christmas carols that were just lovely, I thought. Really? Oh, that's great. <laughs> Technology you're most excited about for the future of marketing? I'm going to go contrarian and saying old-fashioned talking to your customers. Don't forget it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Thanks so much for hanging out. Plug for the site. Nakedpoppy.com. It's live to friends and family only, but if friends and family of uh, marketing trends are welcome to try it out. Yeah, definitely friends of marketing trends. <laughs> Check it out. Um, thanks so much for hanging out and we really appreciate your time. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes, and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.